Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and the, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. And good afternoon. Welcome to this, the Thursday edition of a public affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. My guest today is the award-winning playwright and screenwriter Zaid Ayers-Dorn, currently a professor uh, and the director of the Masters in Fine Arts program in writing for screen and stage at Northwestern University. Zaid Dorn, it so happens, was born and spent his earliest years underground in America as the child of two of the country's most wanted fugitives the son of the 1970s radicals and self-described revolutionaries Bernardine Dorn and Bill Ayers, key figures in the Weather Underground organization. We're here to discuss some of that history, now recounted in Mother Country Radicals, the recently released podcast series written and narrated by Zaid Dorn. Zaid, welcome to WORT. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for having me. You know, I'd like to begin with a clip from the first episode of Mother Country Radicals, a segment in which we hear you as a narrator in the voice of your mother, Bernadine Dorn, recorded years before you were born. In May 1970, Los Angeles radio station KPFK received an anonymous phone call leading them to a cassette tape hidden in a public phone booth. It begins like this. Hello, this is Bernadine Dorn. I'm going to read a declaration of a state of war. This is the first communication from the weatherman underground. Bernadine Dorn is my mother. She's recording this tape when she's just 28 years old, surrounded by a few friends in a safe house in San Francisco a one-room apartment they've rented using a fake ID. The place is crowded, and most of the people in the room are even younger than she is, student activists and grad school dropouts in their early to mid-twenties. There's a device the size of a lunchbox set up in the middle of a table, an old-school tape cassette player with a red record button. All over the world, people fighting American imperialism look to America's youth to use our strategic position behind enemy lines to join forces in the destruction of the empire. Kids know the lines are drawn. Revolution is touching all of our lives. They've written this statement together over a bunch of sleepless nights on a stolen typewriter. Revisions marked in pen and retyped over and over to get it right. It's a collaborative effort, a group project, but they all understand As the leader of the organization, the public face, it would be Bernadine delivering their message. Freaks are revolutionaries, and revolutionaries are freaks. If you want to find us, this is where we are. In every tribe, commune, dormitory, farmhouse, barracks, and townhouse, where kids are making love, smoking dope, and loading guns, fugitives from American justice are free to go. It's funny for me to listen to this tape now, 50 years later. It's not just how 1970 it is. Tribe and commune, making love, smoking dope. It's also how young she sounds. Her voice is a bit shaky, despite the fact she later became famous, infamous, as a symbol of revolutionary rage. My mother has always been a private person, reserved, kind of shy. So I can hear her forcing herself to say these words driving herself to do something that doesn't come naturally to her. Because she believes somebody has to do something. She has to do something. The parents of privileged kids have been saying for years that the revolution was a game for us. Tens of thousands have learned that protests and marches don't do it. Revolutionary violence is the only way. 
That was a clip from Mother Country Radicals, an original podcast from Crooked Media and Odyssey, written and narrated by our guest today, Zaid Erzdorn. Zaid, as one who came of age, became conscious, uh, woke, as they say nowadays, as one who came in the late 60s and early 70s, I've often found it somewhat, excuse, oh, I'm sorry, folks. I've often found it somewhat difficult to explain the spirit, the mood, the political and cultural climate of that time, especially to younger activists. I thought we might start with your own sense of that period, the broader context of the times that gave rise to the period's mother country radicals. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, it's funny, of course, I wasn't alive during those times, but I think both, you know, doing the research for this podcast and living through the time we're living through today has given me a better sense of the mindset of, you know, young radicals at the time. I mean, I would say for my parents and their friends in the Weather Underground and in the Black Panther Party, what they thought was happening in the late 60s and early 70s was a real revolutionary moment. They thought that the injustice in this country had become, you know, so visible and so undeniable that people were ready for a radical change. They felt that uh, the government was unstable, that that the sort of law and order authoritarianism that the government was displaying was the last gasp of a kind of creaky system. And, you know, in some ways we might say in retrospect, they misjudged that moment. But I think at the time they really felt the number of people being killed in Vietnam, the number of black people being killed here at home was an unsustainable situation and that the country was ready for a radical change. With that broader context in mind, there's a complex storyline running through Mother Country Radicals. It's both a a family memoir uh, and a wider history of the revolutionary underground of that era. Talk perhaps, take take a moment or so, uh, uh, as much as you wish, of course, uh, (laughs) to, to lay out some of the key events or turning points that further radicalized your parents and their immediate comrades. Yeah, they moved them. Yeah, they moved them into what they would come to describe as symbolic armed propaganda, and calls for it to bring the war home. Talk about that. The those moments, sure. those events. Yeah, I'm happy to. I, you know, I, as you say, it is a, a personal memoir of my family as well as a history of the revolutionary underground. So, for me, a big part of the project was trying to go back and understand what made my parents the people they are today and the people that they were when I was born. Of course, by the time I was born, we were already underground. We were fugitives. My mother was on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. So by the time I gained consciousness, they were already committed radicals and revolutionaries. So part of the podcast was going back and trying to understand, as you say, the steps along the way to radicalization. What was it that made them who they are? And I'll just, I'll focus on my mom for a second. You know, she started out she grew up in a small town in Wisconsin. Uh, her father was a Jewish immigrant, but also a committed Republican and, uh, you know, patriot. So she grew up in a kind of 1950s small town America. And then she went off to school. She ended up at the University of Chicago and became a law student, an idealistic young law student wanting to make change, but certainly not a radical. But then what happened is she joined up with Martin Luther King in his movement when he came to Chicago for the Chicago rent strike trying to protect tenants from exploitative landlords. She was doing legal aid work, volunteer work, and she was marching with Dr. King, and she saw him be not only heckled, but literally rocks thrown at him, bricks thrown at him. Got you know She was in a march in Chicago where Dr. King was hit by a brick thrown by a white protester and knocked down. And it really changed her idea of what they were fighting against, not just kind of bigotry, but real institutional systemic racism. So that was one big turning point for her. Another turning point was she befriended uh, Fred Hampton, who was the chairman of the Illinois Black Panther Party, and uh, they became comrades. She was at the time running SDS, Students for Democratic Society, and they were part of Fred's Rainbow Coalition here in Chicago of activist groups of different races. And then Fred, of course, was murdered by Chicago police in 1969. So that was a further step in radicalization, the idea that uh, a black leader, a prominent black leader could actually be targeted by the FBI and police and assassinated. I think that sent my mom and a lot of other people into a new realm of thinking 
peaceful protest is not enough. We have to do more. And your dad? My dad, you know, had his own trajectory. He grew up a, a son of privilege. His father was a businessman and ended up being the CEO of Commonwealth Edison here in Chicago, the, the, the public utility company. So my dad, you know, grew up fairly well off and he um, ended up at the University of Michigan and he ended up, you know, watching the Vietnam War on the news and seeing thousands of people killed every day. He started going to protests. He was arrested at a protest. And as the war accelerated and as he kept on feeling, he was teaching at the time in, a, in a, an Arbor Free School. And, you know, he says on the podcast, I, you know, that, that teaching seemed to him to be his calling. He wanted to be a teacher. He wanted to take care of children. But every night he would turn on the TV and see Vietnamese children being killed by his government, you know, in his name. So I think for him, a big turning point was the realization that he could take care of kids here in America. But America was killing kids overseas. And if you took seriously the idea that those kids were also human beings and also worthy of love and protection, I think he felt like he had to do something more to stop the war. I want to take further something you touched on a, a, a moment or so ago. Uh, tell us about their assessments, or more accurately, perhaps some would argue their misassessments of the period. Uh, their belief in the regard to, to that actual potential that you, of revolutionary change that you touched upon, but also, um, uh, some argue, their romanticization of third world armed struggles and the absence of uh, revolutionary movement at home uh, and so on. Uh, There's certainly um, primarily, mainly coming from the white middle class, also divorced from the working class and working class politics at that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think there was a romanticization. I think I talk in the podcast about one of the, the funny things about these movements is a lot of these kids, they were literally learning how to be revolutionaries by watching movies, you know, by watching the Battle of Algiers and by watching Bonnie and Clyde and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and thinking about how can you, you know, be an outlaw? How can you resist the government? So there was, you know, an element that's kind of silly about that in retrospect. I think they... Um, they were, however, unlike maybe today, they were looking around at a global landscape that was being transformed by revolutions across the, the world, right? So you had just had the Cuban revolution and there were there were revolutionary movements in Africa and in Central America and in Asia. And so they thought that the world was on the cusp of some really dramatic radical change. And they thought, given that America was the hegemonic power and the kind of superpower of the era, um, that they had a responsibility as mother country radicals. This is, of course, where the title of, of our podcast comes from, that, that, you know, as white people within the mother country, within the, the, the big superpower that was driving so much of the politics around the world, they felt that they had a responsibility to try to imitate those other revolutionary movements in other countries and make change right here in America. You know, Zaid, I um, often with the, uh over the years that I've been doing this, I often marvel at titles of articles, of, of books, uh, and so on. And I, as I was preparing this yesterday, I, I thought to myself, the nuance of mother country, that this mother country mothered gave birth to this movement, right? It's a very American movement, in essence. Uh, yeah. and conditions here, the reality of what was going on is, uh, abroad and at home, uh birth gate you know pushed that movement so just the thought i'll say one other thing Alan, about no, about please. the title you know please. one of the reasons i called it mother country radicals i came upon that phrase late in the in working on this podcast but it actually comes from what the black panther party called the weather underground what fred hampton called my parents he they the black panthers were the people who coined the phrase mother country radicals and what they meant was white people here in the mother country who can be comrades and allies with the third world and black struggles. And so I thought that was interesting that 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 this was a, a, a name given to them by, you know, Huey Newton and Fred Hampton. And I also thought, as you say, there's nuance to the words, right? For me, this is a show about my mother and about radicalization and about, you know, what it means to be a radical here in this country. We play an amazing clip in the first episode just after the, the portion that you played. It's an archival clip of my mom at 28 
and she's saying something to the effect of, um, you know, you can call us radicals, but at some point this country has to deal with the fact that America created us. And so that idea that, you know, that, that like you said, that the mother country really gave birth to radicals in its own midst. Again, you're listening to Zaid Ayers Dorn, writer and narrator of the podcast Mother Country Radicals, which, by the way, is available through, uh, produced and available through and Odyssey. Folks, you got to check it out. Um, <clears throat> Zaid, you refer to the, to the third episode of the podcast series uh, entitled Bring the War Home as the darkest chapter. Um, it recounts the lead up to and the aftermath of the Greenwich Village townhouse explosion in early March of 70 that took the lives of uh, Diana Outen, Ted Gold, and Terry Robbins, uh, who at the time were involved in making bombs uh, projected to be used uh, in a very, well, horrible fashion. Uh, talk about that a way. A bit because it's certainly what led up to that, what put them in that building, uh, and of course the aftermath. What how it changed the course and direction of weather. Yeah, well, yeah, I think that was a very dark chapter for the organization and really a dark chapter for my family. Um, as you say, I mean, frankly, it was quite a difficult episode to write and to put together. The people I interviewed. Uh, it was a painful subject for many of them, for my father, certainly, for my mom, and for others who lost friends in the explosion in the townhouse. But basically, as you say, you know, this was in 1970 when the, the Weather Underground was gearing up to go underground to build this kind of clandestine revolutionary movement. And one of the things that they were doing, the New York cell, they had divided into groups, some in New York, some in California, some in the Midwest. And the New York cell was building bombs, anti-personnel bombs in a East Village townhouse in the basement of one of their father's homes. Uh, and the explosive, the dynamite in the basement went off accidentally and it killed three members of the weathermen. And it was a, a, you know, a terrible tragedy, obviously, for them and their families, for the organization, for the country, and I think for the movement as a whole. And for my family, just an incredibly painful thing still to talk about. I mean, Diana Auten was my father's girlfriend at the time and Terry Robbins was his best friend. So, you know, my, my parents had not gotten together yet. It was really two of the people my dad was closest to in the world who were killed in that explosion. So talking to him about it even, you know, 50 years later was, was really difficult. And I talk on the podcast about how difficult that is for him. You can hear in his voice and in the voices of others how that pain is still fresh. And also I talk about the really catastrophic error in tactics and judgment that was made at the townhouse. The fact that they were planning, apparently, to bomb a military base uh, and that, you know, that bomb would have had casualties. They were, the, the, that New York cell was planning, apparently, to, um, to use their bomb to kill people. So that, that you know, is an important thing to reckon with and, and to, to deal with that dark chapter of the movement and, and what it meant. Again, you're listening to Zaid. Uh, Dorn, We're, we'll be opening up the phone lines in at right half past the hour. If you have a question, a comment, an observation for our guests, they give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. Again, 608-256-2001, extension 9. Zay, Mother Country Radicals recounts the critical complicated connection between black and white revolutionaries uh, through the 70s and 80s. Uh, the central, talk, let's discuss some um, the central importance of the black liberation struggle, uh, and particularly the Black Panther Party and its offshoots in the outlook of those white radicals that gravitated toward whether, I know we, we already briefly touched on this, but I think it's so central, especially uh, in the context of, of what's been occurring in the current period here in America. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. It's it's central then and central now. I think I talk in the first episode, which is really focused on my mother, about the way that, you know, race is so central to her understanding of this country and really was central to 
her process of radicalization. I mean, she had a series of mentors, including Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., including Fred Hampton, including Angela Davis, who I interview on the podcast. And, you know, for her, the realization of what we now call, you know, systemic racism or, you know, the mechanism of white supremacy was a real, you know, it was the, that realization changed her life, the realization that her life had been built on a structure of white privilege. And, and so that was central from the very beginning. But then, of course, the Weather Underground really modeled themselves after the Black Panther Party and later had very close ties to the militant offshoot of the Black Panther Party, which was called the Black Liberation Army. And really, the, the relationship between those two organizations, the Weather Underground and the Black Liberation Army, is at the center of this story, center of this podcast. Really, the, the kind of the ways that the white underground and the black underground supported one another, you know, providing safe houses to each other, providing fake IDs, sometimes even helping comrades give birth or, you know, get out of town or get a new set of clothes, sometimes providing medical care. And I think it's been underexplored how much the kind of the white and the black underground depended on one another and really how much it was the black leadership of the Black Panther Party that really operated as the vanguard that that kind of all these other organizations, including the Weather Underground, followed the path of, of black liberation laid down by Black Panther. Zay, do you talk about you at one point you say that most of the people you spoke to uh, be they members of the Weather Underground or later on the Black Liberation Army, uh, were first radicalized by the killing of black people by police. Go into that some, since uh, obviously uh, at, at, at some level little has changed. Yeah. Yeah, that was one of the most depressing aspects of working on this research. You know, I was interviewing all these radicals, white, white and black radicals. I interviewed many members of the Black Liberation Army, including a remarkable man by the name of Jamal Joseph, uh, including a, a Black Liberation Army soldier named Jihad Abdul Mumit, Sekou Odinga. And so many of them pointed to the killing of Fred Hampton by Chicago police, and then later the killing of a young boy named Clifford Glover, a 10-year-old boy who was murdered by an off-duty police officer in Queens. And for these generation of activists, these killings of Black people by police were the, the, they were the events that set them on a path to radicalization. And as you say, one of the, one of the remarkable and, and horrifying things was that literally the same week I was interviewing Jamal Joseph and learning about how the killing of Clifford Glover had changed his life. That was the same week that, that George Floyd was killed. And suddenly we had a, you know, uprising and, and racial demonstrations and, and a reckoning across this country with what it meant that that black people were being killed by police because I was involved, I was, you know, doing these interviews at that same moment, it had an effect on me of just how remarkably parallel the two situations are. And how, as you say, how little has changed, how 40, 50 years ago, activists were protesting on the streets because of the killing of black people by police. And here we are, you know, in 2022, still dealing with the same epidemic. If you have a question, a comment, an observation for our guest today, Zaid Erzdorn, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension nine, number nine, number nine. You talk about the existence of multiple overlapping undergrounds, uh, something I think that's lost sight of now or, or little understood today. It was not just weather, uh, et cetera. Um, there were all kinds of things going on. And, and, and that, of course, also included above ground support uh, for those who were on the run, uh, fugitives yeah. underground. Talk about yeah. that multiple overlapping undergrounds. Yeah. Well, so the main, of course, one is the one we just talked about, the fact that the black and white undergrounds, the Black Liberation Army and the Weather Underground were deeply and and uh, they were tied together by all sorts of things and were really kind of working together while underground. But the other fascinating thing for me was hearing my parents talk about once they went underground, they realized that there were pre-existing undergrounds, that there were all sorts of subcultures in America that existed just below the level of visibility 
you know, that were that were basically designed just to prevent people from being surveilled or or apprehended by law enforcement. So, for example, even then you had an abortion underground. You had women who were underground trying to help other women access health care. You had an immigration underground, people who were undocumented and who were trying to move around this country without being caught by border patrol agents. And you had a criminal underground and a drug underground and all these different kind of intersecting uh, groups that basically some of them had some political things in common. But the main thing they all had in common was that they were existing just below the level of visibility in this society and were, in many cases, helping each other not get caught. Um, Megan tells me uh, that we do have a caller that wants to get in with a question or comment. Uh, hello, David. You're on the air. Hi, Zane. Uh, my name is David Williams, and I was in Chicago from 1976 to 2004 as a radical librarian at Chicago Public Library, and I got to know uh, your your your, uh, your Bill and Bernardine, and I had to speak. That's my phone. Never mind. Got them to come and speak at Chicago Public Library on several occasions, and I have the deepest respect for them. And don't get me wrong, but in 1969, when SDS exploded and the weather faction emerged, uh, I went in a different direction. Although I I had been in in the Mifflin Street riot and other violent confrontations with police, I became convinced that we had to build a mass, a, a really mass anti-war movement. And so I was one of those who went off, you know, and helped build the big moratoriums and marches on Washington, non-violent, non legal, peaceful, you know. Everybody could participate on the single demand of U.S. out of Vietnam. And there's an interesting movie called Sir No Sir, came out in 2004. It's a tremendous documentary about the Vietnam anti-war movement in the U.S. military, in the U.S., globally and in South Vietnam. And what happened over a period of a couple of years, Nixon's invasion of Cambodia being central and Kent State, is that the anti-war movement spread its sentiment to all levels of American society. And at a certain point, mm -hmm. it spread into the drafty army in South Vietnam, and they refused to fight. And that was, there was a, David? a... Hello, David? I just wanted to... I'm sorry? You know, you, you're I breaking up, and, and you're kind of, you're, uh, I want to give it back to Zaid. Uh, thanks for your call. Yeah, I mean, I, it's funny. I, I, I take from, from David's call the, the question about you know, SDS splitting around questions of, um, you know, what was the way forward? Should people pursue a, a peaceful mass movement or a kind of an armed resistance? And, you know, I talk about this in the first episode of the podcast, and I encourage David and other people who are interested in the, the kind of movement of the left in the 1960s and today to listen to that episode, because we talk about, you know, the internal divisions within SDS and within the Black Panther Party about, you know, what was the proper way forward? And, and was there any place for armed struggle in the anti-war movement or the black liberation movement? And so, yeah, I think it's an important question. Um, Zayd, a good deal of the latter part of Mother Country Radicals talks about your childhood years and those of others who lived underground as the children of those imprisoned or in, in exile. When you think of all that now, what what springs to mind as, as we're talking right now? What comes to mind? What do you find yourself thinking about when you reflect on your experiences as a, a little kid of uh, fugitive parents? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, one one reason I I decided to do this podcast is because there were questions I had never really asked my parents over the years. Questions about. Why would they decide to have kids when they were on the run from the FBI, when they were literally engaged in this armed revolution and, and taking tremendous risks to their own safety and the safety of people around them? And so I asked them on the show, you know, how can you decide to be parents when you're also trying to be revolutionaries? And the questions are, I mean, the answers are quite fascinating. The way, not just from my parents, but the other radicals I talked to who also had kids when they were underground, 
you know, how they justified it, how they thought about it, how they think about the future. Those were big questions on my mind. And of course, I now know many what we call weather kids and panther cubs, the children of of those revolutionaries. And, you know, they're my generation of 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 kids has stayed in touch. And I interview some of them for the podcast, including my brother, Chesa Boudin, who's, uh, you know, been an activist his whole life, was recently the district attorney of San Francisco. I also interviewed Kukuya Shakur, who's the daughter of Asada Shakur, Black Liberation Army member who's still underground to this day in Cuba. So a lot of the show ends up being about the, the children of radicals wrestling with what that legacy means for us today. We have, oh, about 10, 12 minutes left in the hour. It goes by so quickly. Give us a call, 608-256-2001, extension 9, if you have a question for our guest today. Uh, I want to get to the legacies and lessons. Okay? Yeah. At some level, the history you chronicled is a cautionary tale. But it also uh, contains dare to struggle, dare to win messages for present-day activists. In the course of your research uh, for your project, you interviewed numbers of movement veterans, as we've already noted. What are some of the key lessons that you learned from them that, that are of value today that, that make this uh, podcast important? Yeah. Well, I thought all along, you know, in a way that the podcast had two audiences. You know, one is, of course, your generation, people who remember this history, maybe who participated in this history. And I wanted to make sure that that those people got something out of this podcast, that they would learn something, that there were new stories, a new level of intimacy, maybe with people who they had heard about or known. Um, but the other audience was, you know, young people today, young activists who are looking for some kind of a blueprint. And as you say, um, the podcast offers notes of caution, for sure, and I'll talk about some of those. And also, I hope that young activists listening to it today will think about how these people, all their mistakes and potential flaws, were really willing to put a lot on the line to risk their futures, to risk their lives, to make important change in this country. And in particular, that black movements and white movements were able and willing to work together to struggle towards black liberation. So you know, that's a big lesson for me, the inspiration of, um, of you know, what it looks like to be true comrades for white people to really put themselves on the line. You know, Angela Davis, whom I interviewed in the, in the show, talks about how my mom was one of the few people who really understood what we now call intersectionality, who really understood that, you know, the fight for black freedom was also a fight for women's freedom and for, frankly, white people's freedom. So that's one lesson. The cautionary tale that you mentioned, you know, there's there's several. I mean, certainly there's the cautionary note about violence and about how, in many cases, these people ended up hurting themselves, hurting their friends. Friends of theirs died in the struggle. Other people spent decades in prison. My adopted brother Chesa's parents were imprisoned for, for his mom for 22 years, his dad for 40 years, and has only recently been released. So these people made tremendous sacrifices. Um, and the, the final note, I would say, the note of caution is that the organization fell apart because of infighting, because of a kind of an insistence on holding people to a level of ideological purity that we see now sometimes on the left with people criticizing each other for deviating from the proper ideological line. Uh, we, we have time. We have a, a last caller who will be able to squeak in this hour. Megan tells me that John is on the line. Hello, John, you're on the air. Thank you. Uh, all right, do you think it will be possible for an organization to rise up in the spirit of the Black Panthers? Uh, there's certainly justification for that, given all the violence against Black people these days. Uh, I wonder what you think about that. Yeah, um, well, I do think there's the potential. I mean, I think the Black Panther Party's legacy is still being explored. People are still um, thinking a lot about, you know, what that legacy looks like and how to move forward today. But I think for a lot of the radicals I spoke to for the podcast, members of the Weather Underground and the Black Panther Party and the Black Liberation Army, they're very encouraged by what they see from young activists today. You know, very hopeful about things like 
the Black Lives Matter movement, things like um, Sunrise, things like, you know, March for Our Lives, where you really do see young people rising up, taking to the streets and, and really demanding change. Let's continue. Let's continue on with the phone lines. Uh, uh, Jay tells me that Sarah is on the line. Hello, Sarah. You're on the air. Hello, Ellen. Um, I just like to say that some of our organizations were equally or above ground and underground, and um, we. Um, during the well, late 50s, 60s, 70s, and so on, uh, were um, doing things that were totally illegal, but we got away with them. And then we did things that were totally legal, and we were helping uh, communities in Mississippi, and so on. And and the Menominees, and so I'm very very um, glad to hear this program, and I'm very sympathetic to the Weather Underground, and I think they were punished far too much. I I do know what um, they believed, and I just feel that. Bernadine Dorn and her her partner were just too punished, and uh, I I am still angry. <laughs> and um, I am old now, though, so I can't go out protesting on the street now. And I just thanks, Sarah. <laughs> no, I. Sarah, I just realized who that is. That's a longtime uh, Madison activist, decades and decades, uh, who's now no longer with us in Madison. So, Sarah, wherever you are, I don't know where you are these days, but uh, my best to you. Thanks. Well, yeah. You know, we haven't touched on, on we touched upon the, the tragedy of the ta townhouse explosion in 1970. Uh, we haven't talked about Nanuet, uh, the, the Brinks robbery uh, in, what was that, in, in the 80s, yeah. and, and what that meant uh, as, as well as um, a kind of expropriation, a robbery, of a, an, an attempted robbery of a Brinks truck gone really bad, and, and what it meant to, uh, for the, not just the people in, involved, but the uh, broader movement. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, actually, the episode of Mother Country Radicals that came out today, uh, which we, is called Revolutionary Suicide, focuses on the Brinks robbery. It's our ninth penultimate episode. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, the reason we, we decided to make it the kind of second to last episode and the climax in some ways of the show is because in many ways, the Brinks robbery was really the end of the revolutionary underground. You know, many of these people, including my parents, had stayed underground for over a decade in the face of a nationwide manhunt. They had done a lot of actions while underground, bombing buildings, breaking Timothy Leary out of prison. Uh, the Black Liberation Army had liberated Asada Shakur from prison. So they'd had many successful actions over the years. And then in 1981, with the movement winding down, my parents turned themselves in and uh, we kind of resurfaced. And I, as a kid, talk about as a kid, what it felt like to go from being a fugitive to, you know, going back to school and, and reintegrating with society. But meanwhile, some members of the Weather Underground and the Black Liberation Army did not surface and instead decided to, you know, carry out this one last appropriation, this, um, this bank robbery in upstate New York. And it went terribly wrong, as you say. And, uh, bank guard and police officers were killed in the shootout and um, many people went to prison after that including Kathy Boudin and David Gilbert and they had left their son Chesa at home he was a year old they left him with a babysitter while they went out to rob this bank and then they never came home so he we ended up adopting Chesa he became my brother and so a lot of what I talk about on the show is the kind of legacy of that last tragedy 
You talk about how your your folks turn themselves in, uh, and there's a segment in the, in the podcast that I've been able to listen to about traveling from um, New York, where they where where you all were at the time, uh, to Chicago to uh, so that Bernadine could uh, come above ground and, and so on, uh, and it, it you provide one of the lighter moments uh, in in the story. Tell our listeners about. What happened on your way from New York to Chicago? Yeah, well, I was a little kid. And the funny thing is, you know, my parents never hid from me the fact that we were underground. They never hid from me the fact that the FBI was chasing us. So we were on this road trip from New York to Chicago to turn ourselves in. And we stopped at a gas station and a rest stop to get some food. And my father and I were waiting in line uh, at a Burger King. And a couple started talking to me and they said, you know, oh, you're cute little kid, where are you headed? And I said, we're going to Chicago. And they said, oh, what are you doing in Chicago? And I said, we're going to turn ourselves into the FBI. And, you know, I didn't realize that it was a secret. I knew that we were hiding, but I, I, it, in my little kid brain, I got confused about what was secret and what wasn't. So that was just one example of like our family living on the edge in, in, that, in that way. You know, there's so, so many things that I, I wish we could discuss that uh, we won't be able to get to in this, in this limited hour. Uh, but one of the things I think that's important is uh, gender uh, and how the, because, well, first off, of course, there's, there was women, the women's movement, the, that first wave uh, is t picking up force and the left within that has a, a particular role and it permeates so much of, of you know, of certainly weather. Uh, and so I'll talk about that a little bit. Your mom, your mom is sort of like an iconic figure, but there's lots of women involved in this that, that still don't get uh, their props, their dues. A hundred percent. I agree with that. And, and part of the reason I start the podcast with my mother is I think people have forgotten, or maybe it's been erased from history, how much of the new left was led by women and how many of the most prominent, most important figures of the new left were women. So certainly my mom and Angela Davis and Asada Shakur, who are three of the most iconic revolutionary figures of the period, all women. Also, you know, people like Kathy Boudin and Kathy Wilkerson, Laura Whitehorn, you know, Eleanor Stein, these kind of important members of Weathermen and of the wider movement who really set the direction in many ways. And I, I would say about gender, one, one of the things the podcast is about is that all the same issues we're dealing with today, you know, racism, sexism, uh, queerness, all these things that, that people are still fighting for, for freedom about, exactly the same issues that were animating uh, the movement back in the day. Have you thought, Zaid Ayersdorn, have you thought about the making of self-described revolutionaries with, with origins in the white middle class, some of them from rather elite backgrounds and what that meant yeah, I have. And I mean, I would say it's a slight mischaracterization that, you know, you see in the media that these were all privileged kids who were just kind of, you know, uh, doing this as a hobby. I think um, many of them did come from middle class backgrounds, some of them upper middle class, some of them lower middle class. But there were working class people in the movement, too, people on the uh, in the Catholic left and even in the weather underground. I've heard from some people since the podcast came out who you know, joined the movement as working class kids and you know, what it felt like for them to be a part of the movement. But yeah, I would say broadly speaking, these were mostly college kids who got radicalized you know, as intellectuals and decided to kind of pursue this course. And so that did come with a certain amount of privilege. Um, uh, Megan and Jade remind me that we do have one last caller that's been hanging online a little bit. So let's get them in we, before we get to the close of the hour. Hi, Steve, you're on the air. Hi, uh, great material. Uh, speculation on a might-have-been of history. It's been hypothesized that had the townhouse bomb killed, as intended, young recruits and their dates at a Fort Dix, New Jersey discotheque, there would have ensued a cycle of government repression and underground revenge attacks similar to that which consumed all of West Germany in the 1970s. Thank you. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, you know, I, there certainly are these kind of big questions hovering over the period of like, what if, what if this had happened? What if that had happened? I think, you know, 
there's no question that had the townhouse not exploded accidentally and had the New York cell been able to carry out this bombing of Fort Dix, that it would have changed history. It's hard to know exactly uh, in what direction that would have gone, but I think in retrospect, that tragedy avoided perhaps an even larger tragedy, which would have been the tragedy of, you know, people being killed in the bombing. And then, as you say, whatever reprisals and counter reprisals happened, where that would have ended up, I have no idea. But it is uh, it was a, a profoundly impactful moment, the, the explosion at the townhouse. I want to come back in sense to where we started from. Uh, and that is your intent, your goal, your hope in doing such a project. You've, you've touched on it uh, as, as we talked here this hour. Um, but but take that a little bit further. Be, primarily, primarily, I'm asking that because those in the clear that some of the people to uh, not only are reflecting on the history of the mistakes, the errors, the good and the bad, uh, but also project a hope into the future that this project is part of, I would, I would judge. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I really had two motivations for making this podcast. You know, one was a personal motivation, which was, you know, to ask the questions of my family that I'd never been able to ask, and frankly, to um, record their voices while I still could. You know, I started working on this project when my mom was 79. She recently turned 80. And when Kathy Boudin, who's kind of my adopted mom, had been diagnosed with a very aggressive form of cancer and was dying. So I, it really felt important to me to get their voices, you know, recorded now. These are in so many ways important historical figures who rubbed elbows with Martin Luther King and Muhammad Ali and Fred Hampton and Timothy Leary and Abby Hoffman and so many, you know, prominent figures of the period. So I wanted to ask them questions while I still could. But that was the personal motivation. The professional or, or political motivation that you're kind of pointing to, Alan, is I really wanted to say something about what resistance looked like then and what resistance could and should look like now. I mean, I started working on this project during the Trump administration and then continued working on it during, you know, after the murder of George Floyd and during this period of kind of racial reckoning in this country. And now, you know, we've seen the insurrection at the Capitol and the kind of rise of white nationalism and authoritarianism in the country. I think if you listen to the podcast, what you'll get is real, a real sense of people who channeled their idealism into action. And they weren't always right. They weren't always smart about how they did it. But there is something quite inspiring for today's activists and today's young people in hearing from a generation who really put everything on the line to try to change the world. You know, we have a few minutes left and a question, uh, Jade, one of our engineers has uh, forwarded me a question from Mike, who uh, I guess didn't want to be on the air. But Mike, Mike is asking about uh, your thoughts, Zade, on Chase's becoming uh, the San Francisco DA. Yeah. Well, Chesa, so for those of you who don't know, my brother Chesa, we adopted him when he was a year old after um, after his parents were arrested during the Brinks robbery. His mom, Kathy Boudin, did 22 years in prison before she was released, and then she recently passed away this year before our show came out. But she's a big focus of uh, the last few episodes of the show. And, you know, his father, David, who, who did 40 years and recently was paroled. Um, so... Chesa then went on, you know, he, he had obviously a very difficult childhood. His parents left him at a babysitter and never came home. So he had a lot of anger as a kid, a lot of trauma uh, and struggled in school for a long time. But then he really turned his life around, ended up being a great student, went to Yale, went to Yale Law School, became a Rhodes Scholar and ended up being a public defender, trying to defend people who had been kind of um, tangled up in the criminal justice system. And then last year, two years ago, he was uh, elected district attorney of San Francisco, running on a platform of decarceration and trying to end the, the kind of injustices of our system, our criminal justice system. He was, of course, recalled more recently because there was a kind of a backlash against his policies uh, among you know, the police unions and the sort of tech billionaires in, in San Francisco. But he's kind of an amazing person, and he's uh, featured in the, in the podcast in episodes nine and ten talking about kind of how he sees his legacy, the legacy of his parents, and what he's struggling to do now to kind of 
bring that vision forward. We have like a, a minute or two, uh, Zaid Ayers-Dorn. Um, some final thoughts, perhaps. Uh, you know, plug the project. Uh, tell people how they <laughs> sure, I'll plug the project. Um, sure. sure. The podcast is a 10-part series. It's called Mother Country Radicals. It's free. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts on Apple or Spotify or Amazon or anywhere. Um, and, you know, I think for people who check it out, what you'll get is a pretty gripping story, that kind of an amazing story if you don't know it. And even if you do know it, you'll learn a lot about, you know, revolutionary movements, about radicalism, about a generation of people who kind of stood up and tried to dissent from what was happening in their country. And it's just a really wild ride. You know, there's there's bombings and bank robberies and prison escapes and shootouts. And it reads in some ways like a kind of a, a crime story, but it's also got, I think, incredibly important political history and a family history. You know, you'll learn about a lot about my family, about my parents, about how I became who I am and, and where we all came from. Well, I, I, of course, want to thank you very much, uh, not, not simply for being on with us today and sharing with us what you've done, uh, but for doing it for, as you know, my regular listeners know or people that know me here in Madison know, know that I'm also a historian. And when you talked about capturing the voices, uh, the recordings uh, and so on, getting part of that historical record that would other, otherwise be lost or ignored entirely by uh, those who have a narrow understanding or vision, vision is a, is a kind word of, of what history is and what history should be. So I want to thank you ever so much. I also want to thank uh, all those who made today's program possible. Uh, Olivia Bruce, who was a intermediary, really, a go-between with, with Zaid and I in setting this up. Uh, and of course, <clears throat> excuse me, word. Uh, producers Rochelle and Shali uh, and Jade, who helped engineer as well today, helped out uh, Megan, our regular engineer. So again, I want to thank everyone involved in this, uh, especially you, uh, Zaid Ayers Dorn. I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be speaking with you next week. Disregard the we come and listen and support it. Live and direct, we come and never be recorded. With information that will never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted.